If you're studying for the CISSP, CCSP, or CISM certification, you'll probably get a lot of benefit from the WANA Practice app at wanapractice.com. Hundreds of practice questions unavailable anywhere else, all in a simple interactive format, which you can access through any device with a browser. Check out the show notes for a discount code for half off the regular price. Wanna practice? Success and certification is in your hands. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec, where we discuss all things information, all things security, and all things information security. I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Matt Snotty. And I'm Raphael Fiedler. And Matt, first thing this week, I have to tell you how upset I am with you. Um, I, I got a call earlier today from my father's agent saying <laughs> that if we want him to appear on the show, we're going to have to pony up some pretty heavy scratch. And I just don't know if we can afford that. Now, with that said, however, we have to give another big shout out to Paul Kinder. Um, uh, possibly our best fan out of the three listeners that we have, uh, cause he once again, bought us some more gasoline, uh, sponsoring this week's episode, obviating the need to have our corporate sponsor this week and maybe offsetting my dad's appearance on a future show. So, um, <laughs> what, what is your dad's uh, rate? <laughs> I'm curious. You know, that's, that's the, pro I don't even want to bring it up. Um, you know, it's cause I don't want to set the bar too high for future guests. You know, I mean. It's just going to be troublesome if I go that route. So, I think that Rafti and I are woefully underpaid if your dad has a has a rate sheet. No, 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 no. You get paid exactly what you're worth. Um, Speaking of, did, 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 I want to thank Paul once again. A yeah, huge, yes. huge shout thank out. Thank you, Paul. Paul. Absolutely. Thank um, you, Paul. Did your dad listen to last It's not just financial support. He also gives a, a lot of good feedback and commentary. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's been messaging us on uh, LinkedIn and stuff. So yeah, uh, and and if you want to be like Paul um, and submit a question and have us discuss it, uh, anything for for a show topic, uh, by all means. And of course, it helps if you buy a little bit of gasoline to go along with it, preferably actual gas, not diesel fuel, because Ben doesn't know the difference. We, you know, and <laughs> and the great thing is. We will take your questions regardless, but the ones that come with gasoline go to the top of the pile. Yeah. We are we are a road warrior financed operation here. Um, you know, this is the Mad Max market. Um, and, and that that's how that works. Gasoline. Uh, look for the, the link in the show notes. It's uh, buymeacoffee.com slash securitized. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you all. Yep. Um, all right. So uh, uh, and also, Matt, I. I also have to say um, that that I did get a message from my father saying uh, he was very moved by last week's episode and oh, your good. experience and your willingness to share it. And he was duly impressed. And again, that's my number one critique of uh, on Monday morning, I hear his assessment of him listening <laughs> to the show over the weekend. Well, I look forward to hearing more of his assessments. Uh, Excellent. I, 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 I think <laughs> as long as they're good, <laughs> not the critical ones. <laughs> I'll let you um, keep those to yourself. <laughs> that and it was it was a heck of an episode. So very well done. Um, so now this week we have uh, uh, some bits and pieces. We have uh, a couple of topic ideas and um, a couple of current event updates. 
but they each would not of themselves sustain an entire episode. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a pastiche of uh, some updates on current events and some discussion of uh, certain security topics that may be of interest. So we'll just blend them all together. A pastiche, uh, and, you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I can't <laughs> spell it. Um, so, so I want to begin with a case study. And something that, that has bugged me for many, many decades in this industry, um, and something that I think is worth restating over and over again. Uh, a lot of the times we talk about aligning the security needs of the organization with the business needs of the organization. And this is one of the most difficult things to convey to test takers getting ready for the big certifications, the ISACA and ISC, ISC squared certs is we have a pool of practitioners who don't often think like managers and who don't often think like business managers. And I know we've said this over and over again, security's job is not to protect everything. Security's job is to facilitate the business. We are a support function. So one of the things we run into as that I see as problematic in our industry, and I'm not the only one, is fear-based security. And my giant concern about fear-based security is that fear as a tactic, whether it's political leadership, whether it's business, whether whatever it is, fear-based leadership does not achieve the best effect. And Matt, you know, you, you went to the academy, you, you, you went through beast, you went through basic and, mm -hmm. you know, fear works in the short term. Mm -hmm. Um, but true leadership isn't because you're afraid of your superior. True leadership is because the subordinates respect the superior and for other reasons too, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And so in terms of security, I wanna use a case study that recently re, uh, reacquired my attention. Um, Rafti, I know you've got a fancy car. Uh, Matt, you've got all kinds of fancy cars. Um, <laughs> My my car is not fancy. It's 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 actually pretty old, but it was still made in the 21st century and it has a tire pressure sensor in it. As a matter of fact, I think it has four. I think there's one on each tire, yep. right? Mm -hmm. That's how those work. Yep. Yeah, it's standard standard technology these days. Not only is it standard technology, it's a standard requirement. It's a mandate, I think. If not from an industry standard standpoint, I think it may be required by Department of Transportation by regulation uh and rafti i'm sure you have those on your car as well sure sure yeah okay. um, absolutely now technically you, I, as far as i know it it only like the old ones only calculate the difference between pressure but whatever not that important yeah. okay and all right you once actually know what the psi is in each fancy schmancy now Matt, you and I probably drive a lot more than Rafti. I know, Rafti, you do drive, but I think in terms of mileage and overall hours, Matt and I probably put a lot more in. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had to change a tire pressure sensor, Matt? Never. Uh, I know how to, but I've never actually done it. No, no, not you physically, but I mean, have you ever had to have it done? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've had to have it done many times, yeah. Many I, times. Many well, times. Well, well, yeah, it, partly because of the number of cars that I own, which is currently five, but also partly because uh, my high-powered sports car that I drive uh, has winter tires and summer tires. So, um, yeah, you have this, you know, tire pressure sensors in, in both sets of, of, of wheels and, and all that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, of all the times that you've had the sensors change or of all, and usually you have the sensor change because the alert goes off, right? You get the dummy light on the dashboard. Right. There's a, because they're actually battery powered. There's a battery in there that, that eventually dies. Aha. Of the n number of times that you've had to have a sensor replaced, how many times did they actually tell you that there was some issue with the pressure of your tire. Uh, I'm sorry, let me let me restate that. For the number of times that the indicator shown up on your dashboard, how many times was it the sensor failing versus the tire actually needing some adjustment to its pressure? Oh, probably much more that the sensor was failing than, they, than the tire actually was problematic or leaking air or anything like that. Absolutely. Well, I, and, and I would say, just from my own anecdotal experience, 99% of the indicators on the dashboard have been change the sensor, not mm -hmm. fix your tire. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Because modern cars have uh, hundreds of sensors inside them, and those sensors go bad because they're all cheap junk, <laughs> and they're designed to go bad. And when they do, it throws up an idiot light on the dashboard. And usually those sensors are if not exclusively available from the dealership they are of limited availability because there aren't a lot of aftermarket manufacturers of those sensors right and they're often also in places that are hard to get to that unless you have the dealership tools to get into the place in the car <laughs> you can't change them out easily but absolutely yeah. rafti have you ever had to replace any of your sensors no Okay. Again, again, you don't drive as much, and you have a much nicer car. Um, <laughs> Thirteen hundred uh, miles per year. -ish. Okay. Okay. That's what I drive. Say, say it again. How many? Thirteen hundred. Thirteen hundred. Oh my gosh. I do that in a month. I oh no, thirteen thousand. Sorry, okay. sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Okay. Oh, thirteen thousand. Sorry, sorry. Twenty thousand kilometers per year, or okay. twenty-two thousand, something okay. like that, and it's uh, thirteen thousand. That's yeah, on the local side of average. I, I drive pretty, pretty much uh, a lot i guess okay that, that's that's on that. the low side of average for americans i think yeah yeah i think <laughs> okay, well i usually do i, I probably average 20 to twenty-five thousand miles a year but then yeah that's part of the, my job also yeah mm. yeah you got to go to the locations right yeah. yeah um but i have winter and summer tires as well i do change them as well and i have my car for two and a half years now so never had to change anything very good um matt do you have, I, I, and again, I know you drive a performance vehicle quite often. Uh, do you have like an average amount that you have to pay when you have one of those sensors replaced? Do you, do you have an idea of what that costs? Well, I'm in Kentucky. And so we have the good old boy network here and the people that do my tires are actually my cousins. <laughs> so I get a little <laughs> bit of, of a discount, but I know that they're- By yeah, marriage or marriage. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, the performance tire shop here in Lexington is actually owned by my cousins. Uh, shout out to Dan and Stan. Um, the But I know that they're about $100, $150 per, or, or maybe about $75 per tire or per wheel, um, roughly, yeah, in, in that area. And then the labor can be whatever it is, wherever yeah. you go. And, and if you go to the dealership, it's going to be a bit more. Yeah, and and that's kind of the range I've seen, 75 to 300 depending on where you're at and who's doing it and that sort of thing. Um, per tire. Per tire, per sensor, yeah. really, yeah. per yeah. sensor. Because usually sensors... one sensor fails. It's not usually that all four yeah. fail. It's not like the tires themselves. Now, Matt, let me ask you, and the reason I'm coming at this from the long way around. <laughs> this is an awfully long buildup. <laughs> <laughs> what is the tire sensor supposed to do? What, what, what 
function does it serve? And I know that sounds kind of simplistic because if it's a tire sensor, it's supposed to sense your tires, right? Yeah, it tells you the air pressure inside of your tires. And and do you know why that became standard or why that became an element of concern? Do you remember the instigating events surrounding that? Not in particular, but if I had to guess, it's probably something to do with the EPA and the car mileage, because if you have low tire pressure, you use more gasoline. That is a logical explanation, and it's sensible, and it would actually be something that, from a policy standpoint, would make some kind of sense. <laughs> Sounds good, though. Let me, let me take you back historically, um, about 20 years or so ago. Uh, do you remember the Suzuki Sidekick? Oh, yeah. I had a Geo Tracker in college, and the Sidekick was the companion car to the Geo Tracker. Yep. Do you remember in the early 2000s, right around the turn of the century, when there was a lot of media reports about issues involving uh, SUVs or mini SUVs, as they were kind of known, with high centers of gravity? Yes. The, yeah, they were prone to rolling over. If you took a corner too sharp or if you caught a curb, yeah, the, the whole car would flip over on its top. As Rafti was mentioning, I think, last episode where or met, no, you didn't message. No, never mind. That was off, off air. All as well. Flipped a car. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, yeah. Uh, high center of gravity means that the car is prone to flipping over. Prone to flipping over if you're a bad driver or driving it inappropriately for it being a high center of gravity car. Right. And that got a lot of media attention because there were a lot of bad drivers who were driving those particular vehicles. I won't speak to the <laughs> demographics of who drove those vehicles. They look so uh, cute. <laughs> the drivers of the cars. I no, 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 just, no, no. He cars. hit the nail on the head, and I'm not going to go any further than that. Um, this is such a cute little car. Is it the two door thingamajig with the small so, flat? So in anyway, the, in the okay. what what resulted from those media reports, or what the outcry was, was that these things were exacerbated by low tire pressure. Mm -hmm. Because supposedly, and, and Matt, you know more about this than I do, if you have higher tire pressure, if your tires are inflated properly, they adhere more to the pavement and are less prone to flipping, supposedly. Right, right. Because if you have low tire pressure, the tire, the rubber on the tire can actually roll as you go around a corner or something too hard. And yeah, that and with a high center of gravity, then yeah, you're more prone to flipping. But yeah. So what happened was upon the heels of these media reports and some fear mongering about the tire pressure, avoiding the whole issue of driver error and, you know, uh, poor design of the vehicle. There were then some uh, muted calls to lawmakers to start to require either tire manufacturers to have a certain standard of tire or the automobile manufacturers to be forced to put tire sensors on the automobiles. Now, most people who critique a free market talk about how corporations hate regulation. I don't really think that's true. I think 
Lots of corporations love regulation. Do you know which corporations love regulation? From my perspective, the big ones. Why is that, Rafi? <laughs> because they are the ones who can easily met them, and then it's sort of like gating the newcomers to actually like get into the market because they have to upfront a lot of like stuff just to meet the bar of regulation. Outstanding. Standing. And I think that's true. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't have the data at my fingertips, but I would imagine that this is a very much protectionist sort of thing where when you have a regulation that costs the entrenched players a certain amount, but also costs the up and coming innovators that same amount, well, it's the innovators who are going to have that as a disproportionate impact. If I wanted to go start building cars tomorrow, not only do I have to meet EPA mileage standards, not only do I have to meet um, exhaust standards, now I have to include tire sensors on all four of my tires of the automobile I'm making. So what happened in this big situation? And this is the reason why I'm coming at it from a security perspective. It was sold to the American public as a way to protect drivers. If you don't have tire sensors, then your tire pressure may go low and your car may flip over and you may die. Your family's going to die if we don't put $300 tire sensors on all four of your tires that you have to replace by going to the dealership and having them replaced at a very um, difficult and time-consuming process. And by and large, I think the American public bought off on it. And I, and I imagine the same thing in Europe. Everybody sees tire sensors as a good thing to have. When in fact, it's utter bullshit. And it's all fear-based bullshit. And it's expensive bullshit. And it's annoying bullshit because when you take your car in to be serviced, it's costing you time. We never seem to calculate the amount of time as the car owner that we have to go and take it there, wait for it, or drop it off and then pick it up later. And the transportation costs to and from. This is an example of something that was used ostensibly marketed as protecting your health and human safety, which we all say and we all agree as security practitioners is the paramount concern. And instead, what it was, was a price gouge and an ongoing one. And the worst part about it, from my perspective as a, a free citizen, is that it, it was sold in a manner that seemed like everyone was being responsive to our needs, as opposed to, even if they would have come at it from the mileage perspective that you brought up first, Matt, mm -hmm. it's a rational argument. It's one most people would not have liked. Most people aren't willing to trade a $300 uh, fee that they have to pay every year, or every eight months uh, in order to have a higher mileage vehicle. Most people don't want to do that. Most people don't care that much about mileage. Um, but when you sell them out of fear, oh, suddenly they're going to comply. I find that underhanded. I find that distasteful. And it kind of goes against my grain for so many reasons, from the security standpoint, the free market standpoint, and the fact that it harms the customer overall and protects the entrenched interests. Y'all see where I'm coming from? Is that a, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have another Do you have another angle, Matt? Am I, no, honestly, I don't know if I'm coming at this the wrong way. Is there something I missed here? No, no, no. But there, I mean, you're you're uh, honing in on this one thing. There, there are multiple, multiple 
safety measures in modern cars, everything from the airbags to the backup camera to all these other technologies that are in cars that are all done for safety, not just the tire pressure sensors that all cost money, that all make the cars heavier, that all make the cars more complex and, and more expensive to work on. So it's it's not it's it's endemic to the entire oh oh um, absolutely industry. And, and every time one more standard comes out, one more regulation comes out, the entrenched interests love it yeah. to the point that you know to the point now where an average new car costs what thirty thousand dollars or something like that. I mean yeah yeah I mean it's insane. You know you and I we remember a time where you could buy it wasn't a good new car. It was a cheap plastic new car, but around nine grand. Right. Oh yeah, one of, yeah. Those, one of those little roadsters that was basically disposable. <laughs> Better than the Yugo. My yeah, that Geo Tracker I mentioned. I I think I paid twelve thousand dollars for it, brand new off the off the lot in nineteen ninety four. Okay, yeah, that's so. and, and, and we do and we do have to factor, you know, inflation, yeah, inflation. into you know, yeah. of course, of course. Yeah. But I would still say, even in um, year to year real dollars. I would still say that the average price has escalated dramatic significantly to the point where the entry point for a driver or a car owner is going to be far greater with some of those benefits are tangible. Yes, I like that there are seatbelts. I like that there are airbags. I like that they're safety glass. However, some of them are worse than superfluous like the tire sensor. You know, <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. I mean, and as far as I can tell, it's in regards to because I said more space. Um, this is a thing I, I heard as well is that cars need to be wider now because air, the, the, at least in Europe, the side impact airbags are mandatory now as well. Um, and so they need space to expand. So the, the frame needs to be bigger. Because and you, you can squeeze the passengers any close to each other, especially now with the airbags between the passengers as well, um, and everything. Everything has to expand, and then you need to be sitting there in there as well. And yeah, no, this is um, problematic. Yeah, no, because and that's problematic in Europe because you have narrower yeah. roads. I mean, I, I remember <laughs> driving in England, and to give the right away was really difficult because there was no shoulder on the road and it's, you know, about the width of a, uh, a horse-drawn cart. And, uh, <laughs> it was not, it was not a matter of just convenience. It was a matter of safety too. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then on, on top of that, you know, you've got wider people in America. It's not like, <laughs> um, so you're seeing extra wide cars. And if you have extra wide cars, you're also going to encroach on things like bike lanes that yeah. also have a safety impact there as well. Um, awesome. so, so all of these things have uh, follow-on effects, but it equates directly to profitability for a corporation. If, in fact, the manufacturers were somewhat liable for the car accidents of the high center of gravity vehicles, well, they took that risk or that liability, that impact, and they turned it into gravy because they are now cashing in on those sensors that I have to imagine are a significant amount of the long-term revenue generated by that vehicle uh, in, in terms of profitability. About significant, but I mean, it's just another technology. And, and and you can get off market, you know, off brand ones. They're they're fairly generic. They all use standards. No, they're they're very difficult to find. But I've I've looked for them. I mean, depending on what vehicle you have. And I have a Toyota, which is pretty ubiquitous for aftermarket stuff. Huh. Um, 
but not everyone will install them. And um, and as you said, there's not an easy way to get access to where to install them either. Usually, it will require dealership intervention. Um, so it it you know it's not just a matter of changing the oil. It it is something much more significant. And if the average profit on the sale of a vehicle is only two to three thousand dollars, well, then a three hundred dollar service is a significant part of the lifelong profit of the vehicle. Um, you know, that's 10% right there. So I don't like security from fear because it harms everybody except the fear mongers. Oh, I, and I think the media got a lot of clicks and mileage and views out of their reports too. I, I think that sold a lot of newspapers and magazines. Uh, okay. Are, are, are you done? I am. I do <laughs> you want to add something to the fear stuff? Because um, I could go into that a little bit as well. Please. You have another okay. no, Just yeah. saying, because like, um, of course, like what we do is um, always at the border of like, oh, people are tracking what you're doing and stuff. And we decided. Oh, okay. Against... Now you're, you're talking about you're talking about safing in particular. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so so we decided specifically against pushing for fear and against telling people we want to people to be uh, curious and try to understand better, try to learn. Because I feel like, and those would be, those are uh, customers I'd like more, you know, I, I, for, so for me, it's, it's not just that I just, that I find it distasteful. I also want to like, what kind of customers am I attracting and sort of like that. And maybe with the media, because you said like, um, the media w took this up and, and ran with it. Maybe they, I don't know, curated a set of customers. They don't, they regret having at this point. You know, if you always fearmonger, you get a reader base which you might not like in the future. And they are hysterical and they're quick to turn on you. And and Rafti, I gotta ask you, I'm sure you've looked at other privacy products. You are the oh. exception in that field in Absolutely. that respect. Because a lot of them they they go out of their way to cultivate fear among uh computer users of oh look what they're tracking look what they're doing look how they're impact you know it is very much a fear-based market yeah, um yeah. do you think that cost you some growth potential just in terms of who you might reach if you had chosen to use fear short term maybe um, but I feel like we have such a cool community at the moment so I feel like it it now it starts paying off, I think. In the short term, it might have been other, like in another way, better, faster, whatever. But I've not been it in for the short term. I respect the hell out of that, and and I think in cultivating an educated user base and and a good customer community, I think you've done yourself a great service and the market a great service overall. And and as you said, I think fear is a short term motivator. You cannot sustain it indefinitely. So I think I think you've done very well there. Congratulations on that. Thank you. All right. Um, moving off of fear as a security <laughs> impetus, Matt, you you had a question you wanted to ask, and something that uh, we should probably address. Yeah, I've been in this industry. Next year will mark thirty years. Damn, you're old. <laughs> as a professional in the IT and security industry. And I, uh, uh, we had uh, uh, Paul and uh, Austin on recently with uh, Full Send Cyber. 
and they started that made me feel very old <laughs> yeah you want to feel old talk to a couple of young guys um so they started up their own discord server and they announced it on linkedin so i was like oh, okay cool so i hopped on over on, onto their uh discord server and just kind of poked around seeing what the kids are talking about these days in, in cybersecurity. and i had heard the term multiple times before i'd never really thought much about it because it was never a thing when i was coming up through the ranks but everybody wants to be a SOC analyst now, S-O-C analyst. What the heck is a SOC <laughs> analyst? Because I feel so, like such an old fuddy-duddy, but I have no idea what one is. I don't know I'm, what the role gonna, is. I'm going to step out here. We, You know, it's funny. When, when I was coming up in the, in the ranks of IT and InfoSec, um, that didn't exist either. But I, I have a pretty good understanding of what it is today. And the, the way I look at it is analogous to my Air Force experience. I was a command post officer, did command and control stuff. Basically, we were the um, centralized communications point for connecting all the different pieces of the base or the operation overall. You know, hotlines to all of the base ops, law enforcement, flight line, maintenance center, you know, so forth, the, the generals and the command structure. And we would route information on a regular and routine basis of things that were going on. When is this aircraft expected to arrive? You know, um, did we, you know, uh, have sufficient amount of logistics to support all these operations? But also during emergencies and contingencies, we became that centralized uh, conveyance point for all of that traffic as well. Uh, is the fire department reporting? Is paramedics, you know, where are the EMTs? That sort of thing. I think the security operations center, the SOC, is very much the same thing. They are the centralized network observation point for the entire enterprise. And they do a lot of the functions that we used to do in what was just the security office, Matt. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, and, and I don't think you were ever quite corporate, but, you know, um, in a, a security office, we would do things like log review. We would do things like planning and architecture for future upcoming products. We would take part in change management. And then we would also do incident response when an incident arose, right? Mm -hmm. So what the SOC is doing is they're magnifying those things and doing it on a continual basis, usually in larger or even for small and mid-sized operations, they'll outsource the SOC capability to a 24-7 SOC, where it's continually staffed by practitioners who are trained to monitor the network and both detect and respond to anomalous activity, possibly hostile, possibly incident-based. And they have all the same functionality. They can see the network monitoring tools, the IDS, IPS, the firewall, the routers. They can uh, interact with the IT department, with tech support. They can communicate with the users and with senior management. And uh, most of it's going to be routine. Most of it's going to be, um, hey, what are the updates on um, the... the uh, uh, the C, the the N N V C C the the National Vulnerability Database stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what what do we have to push to our environment? Um, what machines still need patches? Uh, where are we in the update process? 
also, if something gets detected or if someone files a report or a ticket of, hey, I see this anomalous activity, can you follow up on it? They do that and follow that through that process until the point where it has to be um, escalated to an incident response activity, and then they manage the incident as well. So somebody taking a job as a SOC analyst, and, and you see different tiers all the time, right? You know, SOC mm -hmm. analyst one, SOC analyst two. Um, it reminds me a lot of IT help desk, the way that they, they, they tier it like help desk does. Correct, correct. And and I think for a similar reason, based on experience and authority of what they can do, you know, I think your basic analyst is going to sit there and do monitoring, um, both log review and real-time monitoring, and then probably also staging stuff through patch processes and um, uh, focusing on configuration and like that. But then as you go up into the SOC, the SOC analyst tiers, I think the senior members of the SOC team have things like the authority to take devices offline, to reroute traffic, to trigger an incident response or even a BCDR action if necessary. Uh, so basically it's having the 911 call center, it's having network administration, it's having um, command and control all in one centralized location focused on security. Okay. So, Again, this is showing my my ignorance. Like, what? How big of a company do you have to be to have your own internal SOC team? I I, th I think it has to be an appreciable size, yeah, especially if you're going twenty four seven and you're doing yeah. shift work. Yeah. yeah. But but again, like I said, there's a lot of vendors out there who offer SOC monitoring services mm -hmm. to small and medium sized outfits. You know, as part of their overall. You know, it's a watch center. And, and what you do is you link your enterprise up to them and they provide that service to you on a contract basis. Mm, okay. Okay. All right. All right. That's, uh, I, I think I've got a pretty good handle on it. I, I kind of had a, a feeling of what it was, but I, but the thing that surprised me was how many people want to be SOC analysts. Cause I was like, when did this become such a desirable job? Uh, Rafi, do you know anything? Do you all have a sock? Do you have any analysts that are? <laughs> Not at the moment. No. But um, of course, what we do is basically exactly that: monitoring network traffic, um, alerting to to unusual traffic, or just outright like blocking it. So, yeah. So, but you all just kind of handle it. But they, they're a very own. small enterprise, right? right. So they don't have yeah, hundred yeah. seats that they have to be watching. exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see the need for it. The, it, it sounds like SOC kind of forked off of. What the IT team or the security team would have been doing, correct? In 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 times past, because and, and then, you know, this obviously became a much different set of skills that needed to be uh, addressed or 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 because networks are complicated. Yeah, and everything it, it, wants to go online, especially with everything now in the cloud. Just means you have multiple applications wanting to to connect uh, to other services, uh, either on premise or um, somewhere else. Okay. And I think the reason there's a huge appeal for being a SOC analyst, it's what we talked about on earlier episodes where help desk used to be your foot in the door, yeah. you know, to, to becoming IT, to becoming security. I think SOC analyst is now the jumping off point for everyone in security. You yeah. do a couple of years in the trenches in the SOC, and then you can branch off and to do things like being um the the threat analyst you can you can go off and become the antivirus uh, countermeasures specialist you can become the forensics person by building up those skills and seeing all those things live in the wild now that's your stepping stone to the next level of whatever that might be okay cool
I still think they should go through help desk, but <laughs> it's a different set of issues you see. Yeah, yeah, of course. I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, very, very different. Different. Uh, I think this beautifully ties in into a topic I wanted to sort of like bring, bring in it, stuff bring that it in. Well, if, if we satisfied Matt's question, did we? Yeah, did we yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, network stuff people don't usually think about. Um, so in the pre-show, I told. Um, Matt and Ben that <laughs> I, I got some very funny like support requests recently, which I read. And um, it's always funny how much more about networking I, of course, had to learn and learned through through the time in safing. So through the last seven years. And um, we recently introduced something where it's um, where we tell you how much bandwidth you're using. And some people were figuring out for the first time with this feature um, that uh, applications on your local device talk to each other through the network interface locally. Yeah. And this is so, so, so much fun. So they go out through the network and come back to the same device to talk? Not on LAN, but on local host, yes. Yeah. They go through the networking stack. And people are so confused by this, and they don't understand it. And um, when, you tr when you're starting to protect your, your devices, this is actually like interesting to know also for security petitioners and i think like especially multi compound like stuff um i mean now for me as a gamer i of course know that steam it actually is three three things running next to each other and talking to each other through the network stack of your computer so if you have something in there like an antivirus who you I don't know who might be Kaspersky, um, <laughs> um, who not has associations with the government <laughs> you might not like. Yeah, but that's basically a thing. They have the access to that internal communication because if it's on your device, it's not encrypted. So it does, so not, I gotta, it does not, oh, quote unquote, need to be encrypted and stuff like let that. Me, let so me ask you this, to, though. Yeah, sure. Isn't that design, and again, I'm not as familiar with this, but from an engineering standpoint, don't we want to require applications to do that simply because we don't want crosstalk? We do want memory isolation. We do want application isolation. They shouldn't be able to cross-pollinate or share data within the device by shortcutting the stack, right? It, it depends. Um, if it's, uh, and that's the thing, like if it's for you as a user, if you perceive it as one application, when in reality it is three, and they don't talk to each other in a secure way. As you said, like it's not through, like it's not on memory where they can sort of like hand over the data because of memory, it's very protected. But That's they what I'm saying. We want that, don't, don't we, we want, want that. memory? Yeah. Exactly. But if you have multiple application talking to each other on local host, uh, if it potentially is, if you look at the traffic, it's, it's very often is not encrypted. And so anybody like then you lose this isolation, that data in transit is um, even if it's on your device, if another application on your device can see that traffic, it's they can read it. And, and I think um, that violates zero trust principles, doesn't it? It's uh, potentially mm -hmm. can, yeah. Potentially because I don't, I don't, I don't think the applications are supposed to talk to each other in plain text without going through a portal and being getting permission. <laughs> I, I, I think it, that's the case. 
I, I just well, wanted to alert people if they don't know, because we actually, and we talked about this like right before, I think we have a very educated community uh, around Portmaster and people who are in the field who know their stuff. And for some of them, this was the first time where they clearly saw this is the file I downloaded coming in and it got handed over three times until all the time in plain text. They, they interact with it. Uh, plain text, it depends. It's just like if it's, if it's, uh, uh, yeah, if it's an email. Unencrypted, unencrypted is what I'm saying. <laughs> Not additionally encrypted in between. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the HTTPS, like decryption, decryption happened on the first stop, you know? So and that was it. Uh, that and was after it. That it was all unencrypted from that point. It, in some cases, yes. Um, maybe if you, uh, if some of our listeners, three listeners, is designing applications like that, make sure that you encrypt that traffic. Um, Portmaster can see it. <laughs> we could I, intercept it. We could read it. <laughs> you know who might know? I might. I might bring in the uh, Wanna Practice Dev team, the iCompass folks, because they do sure. a lot of app dev and security is a big aspect. That'd be that'd be interesting to find out. Uh, and I would imagine the reason that you don't encrypt it is that's going to add even more bandwidth. I mean, that's more overhead and you're taxing the processor too. More overhead, yeah. Sure. I mean, in the network stack, at least on Windows, you, I think, need to be signed to be part of it. Um, so you at least need to pony up that, I think, $500 to $1,000 to get the, the, the capability to sign your piece of software. But basically, that's it. Like, <laughs> it needs to be a signed kernel extension. To, to sign with Microsoft's signature? Or exactly. To sign with yeah, yeah exactly. Certificate. And okay, so that okay. you can get part of that network stack directly as part of I got you. Is. I got you. Um, but so Microsoft like, or whoever the OS is could put a stop to that by saying, we're not going to issue certificates to any entity that doesn't encrypt uh, stack traffic, right? I they could they could if yeah. they wanted to make that a policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah but i feel like this is an effort i don't know um and i don't say that this is a bad practice um as you said like it of course um sort of like goes another way you putting the data through the network stack instead of writing it to disk um or like exposing part of your ram or something like that it's uh, it, i don't say that it's necessarily bad but that people aren't aware of it um sort of like this was the reason why i wanted to share it on the show and why i wanted to to bring it up and um sort of like an, a second thing people are, are i don't know <laughs> not aware of um cloudflare is pretty cool um and i sort of like recently discovered that they do um domain forwarding to an url as well not just to an a different domain or indifferent but to a full-on url and i sort of like thought about it and i wanted to sort of ask you two if you have thoughts about this um with ipv6 and more and more ip addresses out there I thought maybe um, domain names for some stuff might get less important um, because you can directly resolve to an IP address easier and you don't have to switch around as much because you manage less domains. At least that's how I thought about it when I was setting up stuff. I usually use them if I have a changing v4 address so that I can switch the IPv4 address in the backend. Okay. I'm feeling maybe. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm here. not quite sure what you're saying. Are you talking about redundancy of URLs? No, I'm talking about um, Cloudflare maybe being 
um, adding new features to additionally um, sort of like in maybe a, a future where IPv4 would be not as important as it is right now to sort of like secure their place with new features, which are post IPv4, if we ever move away from it, um, still important and still useful. Okay, and again, I'm I'm still trying to understand what is the benefit to just doing IPv6. Not everybody should pretty much be IPv6 in a few years, but but no, <laughs> yeah, this is not going to happen. Way. I don't see it either. <laughs> I don't see it either. But uh, domains are at least like from from how I use them, very much like a, a shortcut because IPv4 is so such a limited resource, and I sometimes want to have like multiple things at the same IPv4 address and the way how I distinguish them is by domain or stuff like that. All with the same IP address? Yeah, all in the back end with the same IP address, but I use different domains to differentiate between the, the different like people accessing it or stuff like that. How, do, how, do, the the how do the routing tables resolve that though? If it's all the same IP address, how does Probably it know using which headers? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This has all been this, this is all old technology, Ben. This has all been fixed okay. long, for a this long time. It doesn't mean that I understand it. <laughs> yeah, you can no. have multiple domains on a single IP address, all going to different web pages, even though and even through the same port, port eighty, port uh, four forty three, yeah. without uh, uh, because the web server software is smart enough through what's called host headers to determine which which web page to pull up for whoever's requesting yeah. it. And, okay. and so. And uh, Cloudflare even makes this very easy because um, you just have some Docker container running on your home lab server, for instance. That's what I'm doing. And they even like dynamically replace the IPv4 address because I have a changing IPv4 address and stuff like that. So all of that is handled. And I just wanted to figure out your thoughts if if you feel what your thoughts are on post IPv4 so situations. You're, you're talking about a scenario kind of like what we, what we used to call dynamic DNS. Yes. Where you have an IP address that's always regularly going to change, but with IPv6, that doesn't have to happen anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can get more granular with the IPv6 because yeah. you're not going to run out. Yeah. 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 But then you, do we want static IP addresses? I mean, is that, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that a bad idea too? I, I, I <laughs> I feel, yeah, of course. No, I'm absolutely against it. <laughs> I don't know, Ben. Is it worse than, uh, than than tire pressure sensors in your uh, in your car? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if the tire if the tire sensor doesn't save lives but does cost three hundred dollars, that's not worth it. If <laughs> if the IP address fluctuating protects against attacks and costs nothing. That's a good security control. Yeah, but but I think that Rafi's point is though, um, changing IP addresses doesn't help anything when that I, that IP address is assigned to a server that has to be on the internet anyway. So it's going to have to have something internet facing anyway. So changing that IP address doesn't really it, it, it's security. If you're going to be public facing. You have to exist and you have yeah. to publicize what the IP address is, right. even if it changes. Yeah. And a web server should be hardened against that because it is public facing. So right. if you have Absolutely. a static IP address, it shouldn't matter. Right? So, yeah, yeah. So you should but it's everything behind controls. the web server that you're concerned with. I guess. I guess. Yeah. Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. So, so Rafti. So again, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, 
yeah. what I'm trying to determine from you is is what's your question? What's the issue? <laughs> the issue just is I was just curious. I, I found this cool feature that you can do the domain to URL forwarding in in Cloudflare, and I see all the other features that they're doing, which all seem to sort of like um, just like and it's not anything bad about it. I just am amazed how much they're doing. And I feel like they're preparing potentially for a post IPv4 future where they want to be useful, even if everything could be like um, tedious, but still cheaper than buying a domain, just like connect IPv6 to each other. This episode brought to you by Cloudflare, <laughs> all of your functionality all in one place. Now, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're talking about this. One of the things that I think that we really need to address at, at some point, maybe not on this show, is just how big of a deal Cloudflare is. Yes. In our modern and, and, and Rafti, I, Rafti brought it up a couple of times where he said yeah. even the Cloudflare president woke up one morning and said, yeah. I can destroy any website I want. I can destroy any domain I want. And the power that Cloudflare wields. The amount of data that they can pull about just general internet traffic is just staggering these days. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's what I said about, uh, I don't know, I think with threads coming online, Cloudflare oh, yeah. said that Twitter traffic, like from one day to the next, um, sunk by 30% or something from the yeah. traffic they saw. Yeah. yeah. No. And, and and the funny thing is, isn't Cloudflare is a supplemental security product ostensibly, but it's become invaluable to anyone who runs any uh, web facing entity of appreciable yep. size, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. If you're if you're a web developer, web designer, cloud host, you have probably had interactions with Cloudflare, uh, if not uh, formal agreements, at least something on the side. So, yeah, they're. <laughs> And I think, you know, we, we had talked about finding a, a secondary provider because you shouldn't be reliant on a single monolith. You know, the, the monopoly idea is a bad idea. Um, and there are a few out there. But even if you, as a content provider on the internet, even if you switch to another provider, Cloudflare outbound from whoever your traffic is going to be manages 90% or 95% of the internet, you could still end up being throttled if Cloudflare wanted to take you offline pretty much, right? Yep. Mm. <laughs> they are so, what? they have so much power. We're, we're, we should all just be thankful if they're benevolent. Yeah. <laughs> what, this episode um, brought to you by the Committee for Praising Cloudflare and hoping <laughs> they do not destroy it. What um what we call them is of course like Cloudflare is man in the middle as a service. I don't yep. know if, if yep. everybody calls it yep. like that, but it's it's basically man in the middle as a service. And, and as benevolent as they are, and as as uh, high quality as their product is, I'd still like to see differentiation in the market. I I would still like to see many more offerings just to obviate that single point of failure flaw. You know what I'm saying? Well, you can always go to Google. Google runs their own DNS service. That, <laughs> that is... Gee, gee, that sounds like a great way of avoiding monopolization. Just give it to Alphabet. Yep. 8.8.8. Wow. wow. Oh, no, thank you, Rafi. That's a lot of food for thought. That's uh, that's very worthwhile. Um, and did you have another thing? You were talking about doing some uh, support uh, responses or something? Yeah, that was the one with the... Uh, okay. with, uh... With the um, person exactly not okay. realizing where stuff is going but also of course like i think this is how i thought about the cloud for a thing that people were confused about the same domains actually pointing to the same um ip address 
because it's DDoS protection from from Akamai or from Cloudflare or whatever. And so they were like, they're sometimes sharing screenshots and are saying, well, Portmaster has an error here because two domains resolve to the same IP address. And we're just like, no, no, you just need to learn how DNS works. And when <laughs> you say, fine. And when <laughs> but... you say domains, are you talking URLs? URLs, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Domains, at, I don't know, like... For instance, we just figured out that Steam and TikTok use the same, like both use Akamai as, uh, and they, for some reason, at that one location, both resolve to the same IP address. And, and you can do that, and you can do that with your domain host too. I mean, for Wannabea, I own the URLs Wannabea CCSP, I Wannabea SSCP, Wannabea CISSP, and most of them resolve to the same IP address because they're all pointing at my product my home page they you know i just own multiple urls that's all and yep. and and i don't that's not cloudflare it's not dns it's just uh it's just the host it's just uh squarespace you know well it is dns Which, well it exactly. is yeah it's, oh, it, yes, it is it, DNS. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. maybe this is some current ish event but you know cloudflare bought i think i think it was google's dns Did they? um yeah cloudflare i think bought it but from see, matt your alternative doesn't even work i didn't but know this cloud but uh, but I think like um, Squarespace is big as well. They they have done domain name stuff for a while now, and I think it was I think it was Google's because Google does not want to be in the business of selling domains. But it does not make enough money for them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, Matt. Was there anything else you had? Did you have um, some uh, some other question like why is the sky blue or why is the sky blue, Ben? Can you it explain reflects that? the water. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, no, I think that uh, I'm, I'm, I've got a good handle on what a SOC analyst is. I don't think that I will ever be applying to be a SOC analyst, but I encourage <laughs> anyone who is coming up in uh, uh, the security realm. I think it's, it, it sounds like it's a good, good starting point and lets you bypass a lot of the gatekeeping that happens at the lower levels in IT help desk and stuff like that. So, Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. A, a good way to start your niche in security. Yep. Yeah. And I'm too old to be a SOC analyst anyway. So no, no, you would be the thing. worst SOC analyst <laughs> in the world. I have. That's, no why, that's why they really don't want to hire people our age is because we'd be <laughs> like, um, no, you're wrong. This yeah, is just exactly. <laughs> you're doing what? Why? Yeah. What? Yeah. Uh -huh. I do that enough on a daily basis anyways with civilians. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. Uh, before we wrap up, any other updates on uh, safing or Portmaster? Uh, um, nope. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Um, oh, I, I will say I did have my first opportunity this past weekend to work with the free and open source uh, forensic tool autopsy. Uh, I'm, I'm an end case guy uh, and an oxygen forensics guy. Um, I've done about autopsy for a long time, and I finally, my, my in-case license is tied up completely on this other forensic case right now, and I needed to, to do some stuff on another case. And so I was like, what are my alternatives? I don't want to buy another $5,000 in-case license. So I fired up autopsy. I was actually pretty surprised at, at how capable it is. Completely free, completely open source. Um, if you want to get into forensics, um, download autopsy. Pretty cool little, little uh, piece of software. Very, very powerful. Does a lot of the same stuff that in-case does um, for free. So anyways. That's pretty cool because end case is not cheap. No. <laughs> it is not. I, I gotta ask, how is autopsy funding itself? I did not look into that. I don't know. 
I, you know, be, being open source, I don't know if it's just self-funded. I don't know if they have uh, pay, you know, uh, fees for uh, upgraded modules and stuff like that. I, I, I really don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. And, you know, because we, we always have to ask that question of, you know, something that's collecting data yeah. that, that you don't pay for. <laughs> right. We know what ends up being the product. If the product um, is free, then you're the, or, or if, yeah, if the product's free, then you're the. You're the product. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Um, so I, uh, uh, that's funny. I want to, I want to piggyback last month. I went on a field trip with our ISC squared chapter to visit a fusion center over in the state of Mississippi. And they had a forensics lab. And one of the things that they showed us during the tour is some of the, um, automotive device forensic tools that they oh, yeah. have. Yeah. I've got do a good you friend work who does. with any of those? No, but I've got a good friend who does the automotive forensics. Yeah. Pulling the data out of the computers and, and stuff like Scared that. Scared the living shit out of me. <laughs> uh, and again, you know, I'm not a criminal and I'm, you know, but on the <laughs> other hand, and I'm not a privacy hysteric either, but the amount of data and the granularity of data that they can pull from your entertainment system. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is wild. They can tell where you drove, when you opened your door, mm -hmm. when you closed your door, how long, you, I mean, it just, yeah. it just, it's, it's absolutely astounding. It's, it's a lot of the same technology that's in an aircraft black box and it's shrunk down and stuck inside your, your, your modern everyday car. Yeah. GPS coordinates, uh, uh, throttle settings, brake settings. Yeah. All, all of those sensors that we were just talking about that are all proprietary. Yeah, all that stuff feeds and it, it all gets recorded. Um, now, I will say on most cars, it's not recorded for long, much like an airplane. It's uh, it, it, it does roll over on, on a very regular basis because they don't have an unlimited. They don't you know, have a huge drive there. Right. They don't have a 10 terabyte hard drive recording everything that happened since the day it rolled off the, the manufacturer. But but yeah, it does. It does record a lot. And and uh, and I will say the tech who showed us this stuff did say that their success rate of pulls is fairly low. It's like 30% of what they can get. Interesting. Um, I'm, not, however, I'm not surprised. It's all encrypted. Okay. Okay. And it's, and it's all very proprietary. I would imagine that's the case too, from, from manufacturer to manufacturer. However, you know, we talk about 10 terabyte drives and we talk about success rates. That's just the state of the art now. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, yeah, that, all that tells me is that three years from now, there will be a 10 terabyte, that that data will be etched in permanence since it left the showroom floor. Mm -hmm. And that'll be 100% recoverable. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, expect it. But then, yeah, we'll all be driving Teslas at that point anyways. And uh, the Teslas will be making sure that we don't exceed the speed limit or do anything unsafe. So <laughs> and all the uh, tire pressure monitors will be feeding into that as well. I don't know why you think the AI is going to let us drive anywhere. Yeah, that's true. I'm, uh, that will be as long as you're making paper clips in your basement. The <laughs> AI will smile benevolently upon you and let you continue until we run out of metal and they start harvesting the metal in our uh, the iron. In our in our, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh, okay then. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I want to thank you, gentlemen, again for another enlightening episode, and I want to thank Paul Kinder once again for buying us some gasoline, keeping us going and uh on the air for another uh, month or so and and uh and matt i want to thank you again for uh last week's episode which was yeah, sure. really really powerful thank you. Um, yeah. yeah i think that this this episode we're recording right now it will be uh released 
uh, two days before the anniversary. So uh, Sunday, the 27th is going to be the anniversary. So yeah, if you get a chance and you want to, you know, if you pray, if you want to send a thought, do so to all the, uh, the families that were affected in that tragedy. Is there anything more substantial that can be done? Is there a long-term memorial or a scholarship that anybody set up or anything like that? Oh, funny you should say that, Ben. We do have a scholarship. <laughs> is, it, is it Matt's kids are going to college now and, and need some gasoline? Because uh, we already have that funding. Of it. Yeah, my kids are all in college and they're dry, drying me out. My poor wallet. Uh, but no, there is. Um, so uh, there is a memorial that's uh, for the entire 5191 crash that is in... Um, the Arboretum here in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, it's at the University of Kentucky. Uh, it is fully self-funded at this point, but it, we're, we are still taking donations to help maintain it. Um, it's a sculpture of 49 birds in flight. Um, that is done through a organization called the Bluegrass Community Foundation, BGCF. Uh, so if you want to contribute to that, uh, feel free to. Um, there's also a Timothy K. Snotty Memorial Scholarship that my brother and sister and I set up for uh, 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 in my dad's name for our old high school, Boyd County High School out in Eastern Kentucky. Uh, once a year, I go out there to their uh, award ceremony and give away a scholarship in dad's name. That is also done through the Bluegrass Community Foundation, bgcf.org, I believe. So if you want to, if you have any interest at all in doing something for um, any of that type of stuff, I'm certainly not soliciting it, but if you feel like it, um, yeah, that would be the way you would do it. Give me the link and I'll include it in the show notes for the episode. And uh, okay. um We'll we'll make sure that gets out too. Cool. Uh, does does the scholarship that you give out require that the kid become a nerd, or can they actually be cool? Is that it? My goodness gracious! Nerds are cool now. <laughs> I don't know what All you're right. talking about. Right. I, I actually, if you want to know a little bit about how the sausage is made, my brother and sister and I have absolutely no input on who gets the scholarship. Uh, because probably is, as it should be. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. arm's length because it is all done. Uh, Bluegrass Community Foundation is a uh, 503c nonprofit, and so they take the money. Uh, it's a tax deduction for whoever uh, uh, contributes the money, and then they distribute the money. All that we do is uh, say yes, send it to our old high school. That's all we do. We, uh, and then our high school is who determines who gets the scholarship. Excellent. Excellent. Well, very good. And, and again, we'll include that in the show notes. Give me the link and, okay. uh, and thank you again. Thank yeah, you. Sure. Not a problem. All right. Um, till next time I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Matt Snotty. And I'm Raphael Fiedler. Join us again next week for another episode of the sensuous sounds of InfoSec. Hey there, listener, Matt here. If you like listening to Ben, Robin, Rofty, Joey, or myself, please consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash securitized. Interested in training for CISSP, CCSP, CISM, SSCP, CCSK, boy, that's a lot of letters, or other InfoSec certifications, Go to Ben's website for all his training programs at wannabeacissp.com. That's spelled W-A-N-N-A-B-E-A-C-I-S-S-P.com. We are on Discord. Engage with us by searching for the channel wannabeacissp. Feedback or questions on what we discuss? Send a good old-fashioned email to ben at benmaliso.com. You may hear a shout-out or your feedback on a future show. 
We're all working professionals in the InfoSec industry, so feel free to link up with us on LinkedIn. Support Rofty's company and test drive their free firewall software called Portmaster, downloadable at their website, safing.io, spelled S-A-F-I-N-G dot I-O. Support Joey's company, Blue Edge Networks, at blueedgenetworks.com, and listen to Joey's podcast called Topic of Choice at topicofchoice.com. Join us on Reddit at slash r slash ssoi underscore fans. All opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and for entertainment purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our companies, affiliates, employers, guests, or even each other. No advice given here should be followed without consulting with a professional for any specific InfoSec situation you may experience.